Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply roast to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Patrick Bailey. And I'm your other co-host, Allie Martin. And today we are talking with Troy Vossler of Generator, who is my employer. So not every day you get to no, interview the co-founder of your company. So I am excited to you know hear his take on accelerators and startups. Yeah, we're in an interesting spot too, where you know we're a good handful of episodes in. We've had a chance to talk to some folks who are part of the VC venture capital world, not venture capitalism, and so you know, and come like and mortar, right? So they're an mm. accelerator as well, yep. but maybe not quite as large of a scale. So from you're in this world, Patrick, and and as many of you already know, I'm still learning this, but I think this is a this is going to be a great conversation because it's such a large scale, mm-hmm. you know, as. Yes, it's an accelerator program, but it's also a business. So how does an accelerator program make money and where, you know, how do they work with entrepreneurs? Where are those threads? Um, I think there's a, a lot to learn there. Yeah. And I'm excited to ask those questions. And I think Troy will definitely be able to better explain that than yeah. I can. And But I can definitely give a high-level overview of Generator. Generator is a nationally ranked startup accelerator. Started off with its flagship programming, so that's where it invests money into a startup up for equity and then they help it grow really fast and then hopefully they make their return on investment later on. Then they have their G beta model which is free for startups and you know is you know able to be put on because of sponsors and they have a corporate programming so corporations working with startups they help coach them mm. and then there's conferences that are free for startups. But then they also have cultural accelerators like music and arts accelerators mm-hmm. um, basically taking that accelerator programming and applying it to the arts and yeah. then you have upskilling which is the more recent development of, you know, helping build out the talent that can work in these startups. So there is kind of a common thread. There's a lot of pillars. I think that's like, as someone who's a visual person, right? So you put at the top, like, generator slash brandery, and then you just bucket down all of these different options that you could potentially walk into their programs and say, what is best for me? Exactly. And so in Cincinnati, the relationship really started with the Brandery, as you mentioned. And the Brandery has been around since 2010. It was one of the first, you know, residents in Over the Rhine. And they've had quite a few uh, few successful exits. Mm-hmm. They became their, you know, the own nationally ranked accelerator program by their own right before partnering with Generator. Um, and then they partnered with Generator in 2018. So I think, you know, it's been great for at least the city, in my opinion, in the sense of, you know, expanding the network and opportunities uh, for the entrepreneurs in the ecosystem. I think with that said, let's, let's bring them in. in. So uh, I'm Troy Vossler. I'm the co-founder of Generator. We are a venture capital fund and startup accelerator that really focuses on secondary markets throughout the United States and, and increasingly international as well. And I'll speak a little bit to that. But you know, our background is uh, both myself and my business partner, uh, we were lawyers and we met working on some mutual transactions together. So both on the investor and the startup side. And we just realized that there lacked a lot of efficiency for an entrepreneur to go from idea to incorporation, to growth, to raising venture capital. And we just thought it could all be made much, much more efficient. And so we quit our jobs. We found a group of angel investors out of the Milwaukee area that really shared our same vision and passion. And we started Generator in 2012, and and we've been at it ever since then. So, you know, jumping forward to today, we operate uh, more than 45 accelerator programs annually. That is across 28 cities. 
across 13 states and provinces and two countries, so both the U.S. and Canada. Covering some ground. That background with law is really interesting. And you were talking about inefficiencies. So when you were looking to start this with Generator, what were some of those inefficiencies that you were hoping to move past? Yeah, so I'd say in the work that I was doing, so when when I graduated law school, I was fortunate to join the faculty at the University of Wisconsin Law School, and I became a supervising attorney in a program oh, called the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic. Now, this is, some, this is kind of a type of, of clinical education program that exists in, in many law schools across the country. And the notion is allowing upper-level law students to provide free legal services to startups, entrepreneurs, small business owners, uh, inventors, you name it. Mm-hmm. And so in doing that, I got to work with not only really talented law students who are actually the ones doing the legal work, but I also got to meet all these really talented entrepreneurs and and business owners. And a common thread was that they were pinballed through the quote unquote system. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe the system was a university system where they would talk to someone at a tech transfer office, someone at a business school, someone in some sort of entrepreneurial department, or the system could be, you know, state, county, or city government where they would talk to someone at a small business development center or at some sort of economic development corporation in their community. And what often that would happen is none of those one stops was very deep. And so kind of, they all would have kind of what I would call brochure wear. So imagine Mm. you're a tourist and you go to a tourist destination and there's like a visitor center and there's like these racks on racks on racks of, of brochures, you know, here you can, you know, feed the lions here. You can swim with yeah. the dolphins. You're like, I'm just trying to get to a museum that does yeah. this. <laughs> but all those, and that plays a role, right? Helping to route yeah. people. That certainly plays a role. So I don't want to discount that role. But too often, imagine if you went into one of those places and all the brochures were for like the next tourist spot to mm. get more brochures. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you never got to your end destination. <laughs> it, it'd be like this, like, you know, when you look in the mirror in front and behind you, it like becomes this endless thing. It'd be kind of like that. So so the observation was that entrepreneurs were kind of pinballed. So yeah. they were told like, oh, then you got to go over here. Then you got to go over here. Then you got to go over here. Rather than being what I would, the term I use is quarterbacked. Like saying like, hey, you need, like, you need to go over here and I'm going to go with you. And then like, I think you need to meet this person and I'm going to be, I'm going to go with you. I'm meaning like someone who's kind of that common de- denominator who's curating the experience. Another analogy would be, you know, there's a difference between going to a national park and getting the map and mm-hmm. walking around yourself versus having a guided tour. It, it's just, it's mm. different. With accelerators, we, we became, myself and my business partner, Joe Kurgis, we became admirers of of the accelerator model as, as really checking that box. Like how do we take a more holistic or, you know, wraparound services orientation to helping, you know, startups and entrepreneurs. So were there, was there anything like that starting out in Wisconsin and then that you know of in the Midwest at the time that generator started? And what year was that? So we started in 2012 2012, and we really looked a lot to Paul Graham and Y Combinator and just reading as much as we could about the genesis of Y Combinator out of the Boston area and how they positioned it and some of their early experiences. And like, you know, you would read Paul Graham's essays and it'd just be like, aha, like this is exactly what we're talking about. Now that kind of lit the match, if that was the spark to this proliferation of the accelerator model. As to, as to your question about what existed in Wisconsin, not a whole lot. I mean, there were all those things I mentioned, university resources, small business development centers, state resources, you know, but it was all kind of in that pinball genre. That being said, you know, I mentioned my business partner, Joe, he was involved with a predecessor program called 94 Labs. 
which made some early investments and and that's really how Joe got his feet wet and I think he'd be honest with you about the learnings and you know that that he gained from that experience that really mm-hmm. helped build I think a really strong foundation for generator. Now, I think because we also had a chance to talk with another accelerator-esque program, Mortar. And I think what's fascinating with what you guys do is you are all also a business as well. So I'm still on my end, not as familiar. I'm still trying to put the pieces together. Like, how then do you keep what Generator does sustainable? Absolutely. Generator is a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. You know, we view ourselves through the lens of, of operating a business, but you know, I think that's important because there's nothing like capitalism helping capitalism. Uh, you know, I struggle a little bit with the, I think nonprofits play a role. I also think there's mm. too many of them in the genre of economic development. Why do you mm. say that? Uh, because they're not, they're not for-profit businesses themselves. So, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, asking someone who's never been married to be a marriage counselor. Like, I, I don't know. It's not, not that mm. they can't, but it's different. So I want, kind of want to take a step back. You founded a company yourself in college, correct? Yeah. It's Scani. So first off, what the heck is Scani <laughs> for us Buckeyes here in Ohio? And how has had that experience helped you, uh, you know, kind of sure. run Generator? My joke on this is that I, I started my entrepreneurial career in the most low-tech way possible, which was screen-printed T-shirts. And, and, you know, kind of when you think of what's the most cliche student or like dorm room startup you can imagine, well, a t-shirt company is pretty high, if not number one on that list. Mm. But that's what I did. So I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. My freshman year, I moved into the dorms. I, by happenstance, by chance, I was assigned on the same floor with someone named Ben Fickner, who I quickly became friends with. And, you know, we hit it off. We, we, we both kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit and, and we sought or pledged to create a business together. And so we would constantly brainstorm different ideas. And at the time, I'm embarrassed to admit, it's the, some of the original ideas, which we did not pursue, but we thought of, were everything from like an online dating service exclusively for college students. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, this is, this is pre-Facebook, pre- <laughs> Tinder pre everything. Oh, you were you were too ahead. You were ahead of the game on that yeah, one. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, all the way to like a service that would fill up uh, gasoline for students that had mopeds and scooters. <laughs> so instead of driving off campus to a, a faraway gas station, but we didn't like any of those ideas. We kept going back to the drawing board. Finally, the spring semester of our freshman year, you know, we had heard the word "scani" used around campus as a reference to a person from Wisconsin, like myself, or anything you know Wisconsin esque. So think of like beer, brats, and cheese. And so we didn't invent the word, to be clear. We did not coin the word Scani, mm-hmm. but we saw an opportunity to create a brand around it. And so we each contributed $300. So we started with 600 bucks. We printed 100 t-shirts with Scani emblazoned across the front. And uh, we sold them out of our dorm room, but we sold out in like a week. And so at that point, you know, we realized that we were onto something and said, you know, hey, let's, let's keep doing this. And so that's what got me started down this entrepreneurial journey, this entrepreneurial career path. And it's been very, I've been very fortunate as a result of it. So not only has it, uh, you know, especially early on supported me financially, it's what opened doors or continued to spark my curiosity to learn about these other things. It's what led me to law school. It's what led me to that law and entrepreneurship clinic. It's what led me to meeting my business partner. It's what led us to start Generator, you know, and then, you know, whatever comes next, but, but it's very foundational. So how does one then build? Because you're, you're like I said, you are you're the bit. You're a for-profit business helping, ideally, like capitalism helping mm-hmm. capitalism. How do you then build a structure and a community and a culture in your company 
that also then helps other businesses. I don't think there's a magic bullet answer to that, but in our experience, it's it's keeping our mission front and center Mm. to our company, to our employees, and and to our external stakeholders. So, you know, Generator's mission is we want to be the best partner for a community to invest in its best and brightest. And where we came up with that was because in a lot of the communities that we serve, we found that there was a tremendous amount of success, business success, meaning you can go to almost any community. The Midwest is, this is very true in the Midwest, and there's established companies, both midsize and, and, and lar- large-scale companies that have had a lot of success, generated a lot of wealth, created a lot of jobs for people in that community. But what we found far too often is that the story kind of had an abrupt end where they started kind of exporting that. Either they would re-headquarter to a lower cost location, they would outsource production to China or Mexico. Mm. And when we look specifically at balance sheet assets, they would be investing. They often, Many of them are investing into venture capital funds, mm-hmm. but they're doing it on the coast. And the statistic that really jarred me was, uh, this is out of the Brookings Institute, but the, where they said for venture capital funds, 47% of pension fund dollars come from the upper Midwest, can, investing into those funds, only 12% of those dollars come back. So as a community, you know, our corporations, our pension funds, our endowments, our universities, our foundations, they're arguably subsidizing new venture creation outside of the region. And I think- So not a good return on investment. (laughs) Well, it depends on what you mean by return on investment. Meaning I have no doubt that they're making fiduciary, you you know, decisions on where to invest those dollars for the best financial return. My argument would be that they can do just as good investing locally and receive all the second order benefits that come with that. In the same vein of, you know, in in many communities, you know, a large employer may sponsor a stadium or a festival or a park. And they do that because of the second order benefits that come from that. So what my pitch to them would be, you're not sacrificing financial return. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you're getting the same financial return, but you're also making sure that those dollars get reinvested locally, which I think at a macro level creates a much better financial return locally. So then how do you get those people in the community to trust what you're building? At this point, you know, when we started, it was a hope and a prayer, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's can we convince them to take a chance on us very much. Today, nine years later, we try to wear our dad on our sleeve. You know, mm-hmm. so we publish this. Anyone can go to generator.com slash statistics, and we've been publishing all these stats since 2016. Everything from the number of investments we've made, the amount of follow-on funding, the number of jobs created, and then portfolio demographic statistics. You know, we believe that, your, your balance sheet should reflect the demographics of the community that you serve. And it just shocked us how few venture capital funds ever invested in a black CEO, in a female founder. And you could go down, down the list of all these different categories. And so we wanted to be intentional about how we were thinking about that and measure it and publish it. And so also on that generator.com slash statistics page, you can see a breakdown of our uh, of the investments that we've made, the, the, the founder demographic statistics. And it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's race, gender, uh, immigration status, veteran status, uh, and a host of other criteria that we, we look at. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like, who, who are the types of people that you're looking to invest in? What are the people and companies? So on the uh, kind of going in reverse, we are mm-hmm. for our, our flagship accelerator programs, our generator programs, we're very much industry agnostic. So we've invested in everything from uh, lab grown seafood <laughs> to <laughs> subscription cat litter 
to you know, B2B software as a service. So we're very much industry agnostic, we're business model agnostic, and, and that's deliberate. We wanna have a, a highly diversified portfolio and very much take a portfolio approach to our investments. We've made 140 investments to date in our nine year history. And so we wanna be deliberate and explicit about our industry agnostic approach. In terms of the founders that we back, we also want to, you know, this goes to my, my line about we want to make sure our investments match the demographics of our communities. And we still need to improve on that. We are not there yet. But we think, you know, I'm a big believer in measure what matters. And if we're not measuring that, if we're not measuring the demographics of our, of our founders, we're never going to improve that statistic. And so I find it hard to believe that if, if I believe that talent and creativity and entrepreneurism is evenly distributed across the population, regardless of, of where you're born. But venture capital dollars are not. You know, mm-hmm. So if, if 80% of venture capital goes to just three states, I think that's a problem. Much in the same way that if 80% of car loans or home mortgages or small business loans or personal loans went to just three states, you know, people would be rightfully up in arms as a result of that. So this might be a silly question, but I just want to make sure I have this right. So as an accelerator, are you more of an, an economic development company or like a startup, like VC investor? Where do you play in that role with these companies? We are a venture capital fund. And so that, that's definitely okay. the lens through which we view. So, you know, we have millions of dollars under management. We have across multiple funds. We have uh, many institutional investors in our venture capital funds. And so that's how we view ourselves. That being said, based on, on us performing well in that regard, we have positive economic development outcomes. And so for, for, for it's a little bit yin-yang. It's, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, meaning if we're a successful venture capital fund, we'll have tremendous amount of economic development outcomes. I don't always know if it's true the other way, meaning I think there's a lot of great economic development and bad economic development initiatives and groups who don't necess- can't necessarily point to the, the metrics that we're looking to measure, which mm-hmm. is that follow-on venture capital raised. Yeah, because I guess my, my, my thought process is like, okay, so if it's like a product or a service, you're measuring, you know, what are, what are the stats that we're measuring? How are you actually making money? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so and, you know, in specific to our business model, you know, when mm-hmm. we view ourselves as generator management or operate our for-profit operating company, mm-hmm. you know, we make money a handful of ways. So for our flagship generator accelerator programs, those are rooted in a venture capital fund. Mm-hmm. We take a management fee from the, that fund and that covers our operating expenses and overhead to run those accelerators. Got it. We run a pre-accelerator program called G-Beta. That functions as a fee-for-services model where we sign contracts with different civic groups. Those could be state governments, city governments, uh, universities, corporations, foundations, philanthropies, anyone who's interested in new startup creation and innovation, we've worked with. So to give a couple examples, you know, Microsoft is our sponsor for our, our G-Beta program in Cheyenne, Wyoming. In Indianapolis, it's the State of Indiana Economic Development Corporation. So we have many different examples of that. Those programs are completely free to startups. Startups don't pay anything. There's no tuition. There's no revenue share. Uh, there's no equity that we take. It's completely free for startups in that GBA to pre-accelerator. So that's a fee-for-services model paid for by the sponsors. We do work with corporations. So we have a peer-to-peer membership group with where corporate, uh, corporate venture capital and corporate innovation executives uh, do peer-to-peer networking. So that's a membership fee paid by corporations. We run a conference series called OnRamp, Connecting Corporations and Startups completely free for startups. And we monetize off ticket sales and sponsorships from the corporations. And then our art and music programs. So we run accelerator programs for artists and musicians. Same as G-Beta, it's a fee-for-services model with with those civic groups who sponsor those programs. 
And then lastly, our, our fifth and most recent product line is generator upskilling. So focus on workforce development, helping train and upskill un- and underemployed individuals, and then helping them get a job on the back end. And, and, and similarly, those are our sponsorship-driven models. So there, there's obvious some correlation between all these different product lines, but how did you and, you know, co-founder Joe come up with, you know, the, the different ideas, right? Was it always like, we want to create this huge, big platform or was it just like, you just kind of stumble upon these Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I was talking at lunch today with someone about, you know, I've never been big on having like a defined vision. Like I'd be lying if I said, you know, nine years ago, this is my vision for Generator. We'd have this many mm-hmm. employees, this much impact, this many startups, this much revenue. But rather, it was, it was always a little bit more opportunistic. You know, from a strategy standpoint, what is the right thing to do? What are the things that align with our mission? And what are the things that we think can make us a stronger organization? But keeping the entrepreneurs that we work with at the core, meaning the entrepreneurs we work with through our accelerator programs, through our upskilling programs, through our conferences, you know, that they are our customers. And so we want to keep them you know, front and center in everything that we do from a strategic standpoint. And if, if we check all those boxes, meaning if we can maintain that customer service to those entrepreneurs, if we can make them our priority, if we can align with our mission, then we're going to be opportunistic around things. So let's use Generator Upskilling as an example. For years, Generator has had a relationship with Microsoft. Microsoft, as mentioned, has sponsored a number of our startup accelerator programs. From that, because of that relationship, during COVID, they came to us and said, hey, we would like to experiment with our LinkedIn learning platform. If you, you know, Microsoft had acquired LinkedIn, our LinkedIn learning platform to provide online virtual training for un- and underemployed individuals to learn new digital skills. And we'll create these training modules around the 10 most in-demand jobs on LinkedIn. So this is everything from online customer mm-hmm. service representative to junior software developer. And, and we said, great, let, like, let's build a, an accelerator, what we call an accelerator around that. So our generator upskilling program Un- and underemployed individuals apply. They get they go through it as a cohort, and uh, they're meeting regularly as a group. They're meeting one-on-one with our team. We assign them a career coach to help them interview and get a job on the back end, and then they take the online virtual training courses at their leisure. But that's an example where, hey, we I go back to our mission. We want to be the best partner for a community to invest in its best and brightest. And so, admittedly, that has expanded outside of quote-unquote startups. But it, it very much aligned with, with what we were doing. So that, I think that was a great example of being, us being opportunistic, but creative at the same time. When and how did you all get your foot in the door at Microsoft? Because that's an interesting connection there that you have it as an accelerator program. Because sure. it's almost like then you're working with these young, young entrepreneurs and it's a little bit of like a guinea pig, you know, just to trial and error to see how Microsoft is doing on their end. But then it's also allowing them to experience the tech side. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft has been just a dream partner and they're just, you know, I think they're a rare breed in that. I think they match a lot of the creativity and, and energy and momentum that we bring. And, and mm-hmm. we really appreciate that. But the, the backstory is that the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, is from Appleton, Wisconsin. So, you know, smaller town nice. in, in Northeast <laughs> Wisconsin. And so he's always had an affinity towards the state. And so he had mm-hmm. been coming back for a variety of of, of different speaking engagements and things like that. We had the fortune of, of you know, bending his ear for a, a little amount of time when he was visiting in Milwaukee. And we pitched him on this idea of, of hey, we think more can be done in these, in these, you know, secondary markets across the country. As luck would have it, that aligned really well with Microsoft was un- unveiling an initiative called TechSpark, which was where they picked, I believe it's up to seven or eight cities across the United States, secondary markets, 
where they wanted to infuse a variety of initiatives ranging from economic development, so entrepreneurship, rural broadband and access to broadband, and then K-12 computer science education. Those are, those are kind of the three pillars. And we said, well, great, you know, we, we would love to help you on all three of them. And in particular, our NACT is on the, the startup accelerator front. And so they've been partners of ours in our Northeast Wisconsin program, our Detroit program, and, and most recently our Cheyenne program. And then, you know, that's continued to blossom with the, the generator upskilling initiative. How important are these big tech companies for businesses and accelerator programs like Generator? In us, it's been transformational, meaning we, based on our business model, we need to prove outcomes to our to our sponsors and stakeholders, you know, specific to that model, that G beta model. But and we've been fortunate to work with the likes of Northwestern Mutual, Rockwell Automation, Kohl's Department Stores, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, you know, Microsoft. Boston Scientific, Mayo Clinic, Universities of Wisconsin, Nebraska, Minnesota, St. Thomas, Case Western, uh, and a host of others through these initiatives. All those partners, not just corporations, all those partners, I think just deserve a ton of credit for having a willingness to to partner with us because we are a bit unique in, in the for-profit nature of us. But at the end of the day, we think partners should be looking for the best vendor to produce the results that they want, whether that's looking for new innovations that can infuse their corporate thinking, whether that's looking for creating a tech culture to help reinvigorate a city, or if that's just looking to create wealth and jobs for people in the region, you know, we, we, we think we're the best partner. This is more of like a cynical mindset and a devil's advocate on my part. You know, if these big tech companies are also sponsoring and funding, does that also hinder young entrepreneurs, you know, innovation or mindset to move forward? Because does that just create a larger monopoly for these tech companies? I don't know if they have some sort of an influence. Yeah. That could be naive for me to say. It's not naive. I think we have not seen that play out, or at least Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of any anecdotal, much less empirical evidence of that. Uh, If anything, it's been quite the contrary. These, they have been a but for contributor to, to allow hundreds of entrepreneurs to, to, live out their mission or live out their goal. I should point out that none of these corporations, none of these governments, none of these civic groups, none of these universities, they don't have any equity in these startups that we work with through the GBA model. They don't have any, you know, residual rights or royalties or, or anything of that nature, no IP rights or anything like that. So if that, if it, that were not the case, I'd be a little bit more concerned, but, but there's no strings attached in that regard. And the alternative is we would have to charge entrepreneurs or have a different business model. And I don't think that would produce as good of results because I don't think we should put like a tuition or a paywall in front of really talented entrepreneurs that, that want to have a chance or receive some network and mentorship through our programs. So what brought you to Ohio and Cincinnati more specifically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we first stepped foot in Ohio with our relationship with the brandery. So gosh, a little over three years ago now, um, we struck a relationship with Main Street Ventures, the parent of the brandery, uh, to take over the operations of that program. And so we've now uh, been doing that for the last three years. We've maintained the brandery's focus on CPG companies, ad tech, marketing tech, digitally native brands. And yeah, we've tell had, people what the brandery is. Yeah. So the brandery is another nationally ranked accelerator program. At Generator, we got to know the founders of the brandery through our, our mutual engagement in a trade association called the Global Accelerator Network, or GAN, G-A-N, Global Accelerator Network. So with GAN, you know, they would host these different retreats and, and conferences and summits. And so, you know, I got to know uh, specifically Tony at the Brandery in Cincinnati, and, and, you know, we hit it off. And, you know, they were looking to, to do some other initiatives like they've done with their Main Street Ventures and their Small Business Grant Program. 
and they were looking for someone to continue the operations of the brandery. And, and, and so we struck a, a deal where, where Generator came in and, and became that operator. I want to backtrack a little bit because you kind of brought up the idea of mentors, right? Like mentorship. Mm-hmm. What does good mentorship look like to Generator? Ooh, I think it's, it, it can come in, in different forms and flavors. I think more than anything, it's someone who's willing to, to speak their mind mm-hmm. and be helpful. Now that can manifest in many ways. So let me give you kind of two seemingly disparate examples, but both of which very much fall under the label of helpful. Someone who comes in and loves what you're doing. I love your idea. I, and maybe that leads them to wanting to invest, or maybe that leads them to wanting to join your company. Maybe that leads them to making key introductions to customers, distributors, vendors, or other investors. So that's an example of kind of rolling up their sleeves and and leveraging their network and perhaps their own expertise to help you as a, as a company. Another example could be a mentor who says, you know, I've seen this movie many times and it doesn't end well, and here's why, and here's been my experiences, and I want to try to guide you to a safer port. You know, mm-hmm. I want to guide you to a better outcome. Yeah. Now, that might seem, in the latter example, that might seem like the mentor is criticizing the company or, or not, int- you know, because they're not investing or making all these introductions. They may seem like they're not being helpful, but I actually think that's very helpful. As long as it's rooted in authenticity and kind of, you know, their own life experience and, and, and objective data, that's very helpful to an entrepreneur. And so our goal with our mentorship program, you know, for our flagship programs, we aim to have at least 100 mentors who come out and meet each of the five startups we call this our mentor swarm. So think of mm-hmm. it as kind of like a, uh, a, a, a quick pitch <laughs> uh, event between the mentors and, and entrepreneurs. But our logic is we want our entrepreneurs to meet as many smart, well-connected people as possible. And if that happens, we know that positive serendipitous outcomes will emerge from that. I, c- I can never be prescriptive. I can't say, you know, you're going to meet this mentor and here's what's going to happen. Yeah, I was like, is, like, is know, it speed dating? It's very much like speed dating. So, yeah. you know, this is a defined window. Each of the startups meets in, in 20 minute increments with each of five mentors and they rotate through in, in a morning or afternoon, uh, both in person, pre-COVID and post-COVID and virtually. Because again, part of our, our reach is we want to, you know, we want the startups to have access to mentors, the best of the mentorships lo- locally, the best of the mentors locally, but also great mentors throughout our generator network more nationwide. Um, so it's very much like that speed dating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say from your years of experience coaching startups is the most helpful thing, I guess, if you're trying to help a startup? You know, what is the most like helpful thing that, you know, average Joe Schmo can do to help startup XYZ? Yeah, I think, you know, the dirty secret of what we do is is provide accountability, external accountability. No different than how like a per- if you work out and have a personal trainer, it's external accountability. Like, oh, since mm-hmm. I paid this person, I got to mm-hmm. show up and, and they're going to push me. You know, I, I only want to do 10 pushups. They're going to make me do 12, you know, that sort of thing. So a lot of what we do is, is based on our experiences and in consultation with the startups, help them set milestones, hold them accountable to achieving those milestones. But more than anything, helping them provide re- providing them resources to accomplish those milestones. So if that's in the form of introductions, if that's in the form of mentorship, if that's leveraging our own expertise internally, you know, those are the tools in our tool belt that we're trying that we're making accessible to the entrepreneur to help them reach those milestones. So with that said, you know, on, on top of external accountability, what are those companies and those entrepreneurial entrepreneurs that you want to attract here? What, what are the qualities of the entrepreneurs? Yeah, so, what, are they, what are the qualities, companies? What is it that you're looking for? Yeah, I think when we're looking at the on the people side of the equation, well, let's take a step back. When it comes to an idea or a, a business, 
I'm willing to believe that almost any business or any idea can be viable. And, and I think the types and the diversity of companies that we've invested in speak to that. But for me, it's about prove to me that the dog will eat the dog food. Meaning, again, I'm willing mm-hmm. to bet that any idea can be good. It comes down to execution. It comes down to does the market want it? That's what I mean by prove that the dog yeah, will eat yeah. the dog food. From there, more importantly, therefore, we look at the people. And, you know, I love what Paul Graham from my commenter, you know, he has an essay about how to convince investors. And he talks about at the end of the day, human nature is such that, you know, the, the intangible quality people are looking for is what he calls formidability. Are you formidable? And he says that, you know, a definition of that can more or less boil down to, is this a person who gets their way in life? And that's this whole mix of capability, aptitude, intelligence, resourcefulness, network, perseverance. It's kind of all those things wound up together. But in my experience, that that is that intangible quality that we're chasing as investors. We're not always right. We don't always have perfect information when we're meeting people through the interview and, and, and the application process leading up to the accelerator. Um, but we try to be more right than wrong. So at the end of the day, that you know that we're looking for great founders, we're looking for venture backable opportunities, and and then pr- all things being equal, prove that the dog will eat the dog food uh, in the form of traction or some sort of proxy for traction. How do you then try to get that you know unattainable, intangible you know aspect out of them in a short yeah, amount that's of time? What I was going to ask you. Yeah. What are the questions that you're asking to try to weed through it? Yeah, you know, it's everything from, um, you know, digging in on the genesis of the business. Was it based on some prior life experience, some prior professional mm-hmm. experience? You know, do they have kind of a unique point of view to this problem and, and, and therefore solution? You know, it's looking at what have they accomplished to date, meaning if, if they are all these things, like meaning a great founder, they're formidable, et cetera, well, they've probably taken steps towards an MVP, toward developing their product or service, towards getting customers and revenue, you know, into their business. And so it's looking at those outcomes as well. What's the biggest mistake young entrepreneurs make that you see? I think it's not being focused enough on, on traction. And, for, and traction mm-hmm. can mean different things for different businesses. That being said, like spoiler alert, more often than not, it is related to, to users, customers, and revenue. Mm-hmm. Again, there are exceptions to this, but I believe entrepreneurs need to be focused on that traction. I think too often humans revert to their core competency and for many, many entrepreneurs, that's mm. product. If I'm a great developer, if I encounter any uncertainty or turbulence, I'm going to go back to writing code. If mm-hmm. I'm an engineer and I encounter any sort of uncertainty or turbulence, I'm going to go back to fiddling on the product. Rarely is someone's core competency truly sales, meaning when they encounter turbulence, mm. they want to like go out and sell even more. And so a lot of our jobs is identifying that, like finding out where people's core competencies are and, and also identifying when they slip back into that comfort zone when yeah. really they should most likely be focusing on the opposite of that, which is go out, live with your customers, talk to customers and go on out and keep trying to sell and validate what you're doing. Let's kind of elaborate on that more because I think that's really interesting because what advice then do you have for someone who may not acknowledge that they're falling back into that or are hesitant and are headstrong of like, no, this is because you can get emotionally attached to a product or a service or whatever it is. Or I don't feel like talking to anyone right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What advice do you have to say? Hey, put on your big boy pants and get out there. It can be hard. So, you know, again, this is where there's just so many different personalities that we've dealt with. But, you know, for mm-hmm. us, what's been most successful, but not unanimously successful, is referencing past stories. Like, mm. hey, here's one or two other examples where we worked with a founder. Maybe it's a similar industry, similar business model, similar stage. Here's what they're encountering and, and then what they did and how they corrected that or how they pivoted. And here's how that played out. So I think the more you can reference examples like that, that are objective or rooted in objectivity, 
the better. But but we can't always convince people. And and yeah. to be clear, at the end of the day, we don't we don't own the company. We're a min- minority investor. We don't have any board seats. You know, we have no veto rights or anything like that. Like it's it's the founder's company. And at the end of the day, we're we're gonna do our best to support them no matter what. But along the way, we're you know, the only reason we're telling you or trying to give you this advice or steer you in a certain direction is because we do have aligned incentives. We are we are a shareholder in your company. We might be a very mm-hmm. small minority shareholder, but we're a shareholder nonetheless, and we only make money, you know, when you're successful. So what is the the future then? What's the end goal for for generator and the brandery? I we get the most the, the biggest high when, you know, the founders that we invest into, the startups that we invest into go on and have success. Mm-hmm. And, and ideally that's, you know, that manifests in a founder calling us, meeting with us or, or having a Zoom call saying, hey, great news, we're getting acquired. Uh, and everyone's, you know, making a lot of money, myself, my family, all my employees are going to be doing really well financially. And, and bigger picture now, hopefully that institutional knowledge, meaning the knowledge gained by the, the founding team, by all the employees of that company, hopefully that can be reinvested back into the ecosystem. And also, hopefully the financial wealth that was created can also be reinvested. So meaning, how do those founders that have had success, that have had exits, go on to become angel investors themselves and and really help finance and invest in the next wave of entrepreneurs? So I guess what are, you know, things that you've learned, I guess, along the way and, you know, things that you wish you could have done different? And then what would you say are like the successes and, you know, you want to, you know, do again? I think things that we would have done differently, I think we, sh- we should have scaled and grown sooner. Mm. You know, what's interesting is when we first started growing, I think there was a lot of kind of parochial voices that, that they're parochial, meaning like these are people that never did business outside of their, their bubble, their region. And so like, who, how dare we aspire to more success than them and, and growth beyond that? And I think a fear of that or like, you know, rumors or mumblings of that in the back of our minds help or contributed to limiting our growth early on, we should have ignored that. We should have, you know, if we, we should, we were entrepreneurs, we're entrepreneurs, you know, we should have made the decision to grow based solely on, on our own dashboard and, and what we thought was right and the right opportunity for the company. You know, we've since, you know, blown past that. I think, I think Generator has more university partners than any accelerator in the world. I think we have, we run more accelerator programs than, than all, but maybe one or two accelerators in the world. And so we've quickly, I, I think, made up for lost time in that regard. I, I'm very proud of the concierge approach that we've taken. So, you know, first, tactically, how that plays out is for all of our different accelerator programs, we only whether it's an investment program or a free pre-accelerator or a musician program or an upskilling program, we focus on five entrepreneurs at a time going through the cohort. And I think that just allows us to provide a lot more one-on-one attention with each of those founders. That's very different than many of our peers and competitors who may do 10 companies at a time, twice as many as us, who may do 50 companies at a time. You know, YC now is doing over 300 companies in a batch. It's just different. It's a different strategy. It's a different model. But for us, in the markets that we're in, these secondary markets, meaning we're not in Silicon Valley, we're not in Boston, we're not in New York, that model has proven to be very successful. And I think the founders that go through our programs really appreciate that that more hands-on attention. How long typically do the programs last too? So our pre-accelerator program is a seven-week-long program. And then for those what I call flagship programs where we're actually investing, those can be between 12 and 16 weeks. Um, I guess another question is, what do you think Cincinnati and the state of Ohio can do better to support startups? It's a good question. You know, I would love to see more 
of I think a, a huge strength of Cincinnati are the you know what, what the community loves to call big co's you know large corporations that are engaged. I would love to see more of the dollars that those big co's are contributing to the ecosystem to stay local. You know, again, I talk about you know all these Midwestern communities. There's been tremendous success at the corporate and foundation and university levels. To the extent we can have more of those dollars stay home, that, that would be my request. So, for example, tr- you know, if a, if a corporation is investing into the venture capital asset class, asking that corporation where are those dollars going? Are they being invested in LA or Silicon Valley or New York or Boston? Or what percentage of those dollars, whether it's direct investment or investment into a fund or a fund of funds, where are those dollars ultimately being invested? And I hope an increasing percentage, I hope the answer is Cincinnati. So what do you think from a policy perspective, I guess, like a governmental uh, perspective, should Ohio do better or Cincinnati do better? You know, the Ohio Third Frontier Program, I think, has done a lot of great things throughout the state. You know, if I had any um, commentary or edits to that, I think the more you can open it up so that there's not necessarily specific gatekeepers in each of the geographic regions of the state, I think that that might allow more competition. And I think competition is a good thing. So my final question is, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur just starting out? I'd say, you know, everyone can have a great idea. Go out and prove it. You know, like talk is cheap, go out and actually build that company. And it's a little bit of channeling the, the Nike slogan of just do it. Now, I, that's not to say like bl- do it blindly, like, hey, you should burn, light a million dollars on fire and, 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 and do poor I wish things. I had a million dollars to blood. But, or raise, <laughs> that's what I mean, raise a million dollars and light it on fire. But rather build an MVP, go out and get customers. I think too often entrepreneurs hide behind this veil of kind of if you build it, they will come. And sometimes that's true, but usually it's not. So instead of saying like, hey, I need a million dollars to develop this widget and a perfect advertising campaign and XYZ, like what's the most manual way you can test whether or not a, the, the customer wants this and it's go like out and do cut that. Cut the BS and, yes. and start simple. And again, like, is the dog going to eat the dog food? Will the dog eat the dog food? You got it. You know, not every day you get to interview the co-founder of your company, Ali. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. That's a change for you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no. I have not done that yet. <laughs> you learn something new each time. Uh, you do talk to, you know, the higher ups and the powers that be at your company. And, you know, for me, I think this is definitely the perspective more so focus on Ohio and the brandery, um, especially. And, you know, how kind of like Troy brought up a great point towards the end in which we could have probably elaborated a little bit more on this is you know accountability for the external money. accountability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for you know the you know either corporations that are investing into startups and innovations in the ecosystems mm, you're or, thinking from the big corporate yeah things, from the yeah. big corporations or even just you know government dollars you know mm-hmm. we have the third frontier front here in ohio which is taxpayer money <laughs> going in to support you know startup ecosystem. So basically helping build out, you know, small businesses and startups in, you know, throughout, you know, the lower, middle and upper regions of Ohio, you know, what kind of accountability and what kind of metrics are they measuring? Um, Going back to, you know, what Troy said during earlier about, you know, metrics do kind of matter. Well, and maybe that's something that we need to look forward to or look for for the podcast in the future is, okay, do we need to start following the money? And how do we then track that a little bit better? So we also have a better idea as to where that money is going and if it's staying in Ohio, staying in the Midwest and staying locally or not. I'm not really sure. 
Mm-hmm. But then it also even goes back because you're talking about accountability yeah. for the corporate companies. And I was even thinking of the takeaway of external accountability on an individual entrepreneurial level mm. as to, you know, the basic thought, you know, does the dog eat the dog food? I think we individually, and even if we're running a business or not, or if we're just, we're involved your in daily lives, your daily lives of, of, uh, let's come back down to earth a little mm. bit and take a hard reality check as to what are our goals, what are we trying to achieve, and where do we as individuals slack? Because mm. that's a, that's a really hard conversation to have one on one with yourself. Because that that shows your vulnerability and where your where your weaknesses are. But when you can unveil those weaknesses, then you start to realize, oh, snap, this is what's holding me back. And this is why my dog keeps running away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if the most basic thing of your dog not eating the dog food doesn't happen, right? Like clearly you're doing something wrong. Like my dog, she would just go running down the stairs when she ever heard the food bag open. So clearly like- (laughs) That's how I feel about M&Ms pouring into a jar. (laughs) (laughs) Me and wine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think it is holding- you know, yourself as an entrepreneur accountable, holding yourself, you know, as a, you know, just individual accountable day day to day, Mm -hmm. you know, as the simplest, easiest task getting completed. And then are we holding, you know, our governments and corporations that say they're supporting our local regions accountable? Yeah. And he had mentioned too, at one point in time of doing the right thing. And I I wish I kind of would have elaborated that and picked his brain a little bit more on that because I've always been, I've been told that individually, like do the right thing, you know, growing up as a kid, but it's like, what, what, what is, is the right thing? What is the right thing? What does that mean? <laughs> I just imagine like a devil alley and like an angel alley on each of your oh shoulders. Oh my gosh. <laughs> eat the cookie. Don't eat the cookie. You deserve, you don't deserve it. Uh, uh, anyway, that's, that's my thought. Cause I know we talked mostly about the, you know, the business side of an accelerator. We've had an accelerator previously, yeah. Mortar, and we kind of d- dived into that a little bit more. And you li- cause you live in that world of mm-hmm. these accelerator programs. And if anyone who's listening to this doesn't is probably as a similar mindset like myself of, you know, I, I definitely have a good, I, from a marketing background, I, I'm, I'm an ideator and I could see the bigger picture, but necessarily like getting it going, getting it started and, you know, working it, follow again, follow the money. What does it actually take? Mm. And the business track sometimes can get a little confusing. And that's where diving into some of those basic questions yeah. with these accelerator programs helps. And um, no, I, I love we're that. starting and to build that foundation. I guess my take on that whole thing is, you know, I kind of see it as being a consultant, you know, you hear yeah, mentorship, right? You hear mm-hmm. like big companies like Coca-Cola, Home Depot, you know, hiring like McKinsey and Bain and IBM consultants, you know, outside management consultants. And you're like, why mm-hmm. can't they just do it themselves? Well, because, you know, it is it's cheaper, it's and, just easier cheaper and more cost, cost effective just to, you know, outsource it. And so yeah. it's kind of, I see, you know, I don't know, I kind of helping, you know, run accelerator programming. I see myself as kind of a, you know, external consultant of, you know, helping startups. So I guess that's how I kind of view it. I don't know if everybody else will agree with that. No, but but it's also good to get outside perspective as well, because if you're, if you are constantly working internally and hiring internally that way, uh, you can also get stuck in, mm-hmm. in a rut. So mm-hmm. something to think about. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. So, Ali, I think it's time. Oh, it is definitely time. <laughs> Cheers. Post. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Ali Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. 
At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on the show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync. <laughs>